Okay, turn to Job chapter 40, verse 6. A 10,000 foot view of the book of Job will show you that at the very end, God speaks and the story kind of closes out. And so my heart for this message is that you too would let God have the final word in your story. Let God have the final word when your marriage gets difficult. Let God have the final word when your life falls apart and you lose everything that was valuable to you. Let God have the final word, like in the story of Job. Chapter 40, verse 6. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man and I'll question you. And you'll answer me. Would you discredit my justice? And would you condemn me to justify yourself? This is God's word. Lord, you've been speaking through your word for thousands of years. If preaching was going to save the world, you would have saved the world a thousand times by now. children are coming to listen to you speak to us through your word. So you the words to speak and let the meditations of our hearts and our minds be pleasing to you. Amen. One of my favorite movies came out a few years ago and it's called The Tree of Life. It's got Brad Pitt and Sean Penn in it. And it's a really abstract movie that's loosely based on the story of Job and what goes on in, in the tension in Job's life. The story of the tree of life is about a friend, a brother who, who lost his brother and, and on his birthday he's reflecting back on his entire life. And it's a very abstract movie and in it there are many prayers that you can hear that are silent prayers inside the character's hearts and I love it. All throughout the movie, you hear these silent prayers that sound like this. Where are you? Do you see me? Are you real? Are you out there? This similar tone that has been going through the entire story of Joel. All the characters are trying to figure out, is God really out there? Does he really hear me? Does he really see me? Have you been feeling distant from God lately? Have you felt like God is on a summer vacation from your life? Sometimes the worries and anxieties of life just start becoming bigger and bigger to us and giving us questions. And I don't think God's scared of our questions. I mean, in the end of Job, the final chapter, God is kind of angry with Job's friends, and he says to them, you did not speak rightly of me as Job did. And I couldn't figure out that verse before because Job definitely didn't speak well of God and rightly of him. We know this, but I think what God's getting at is that Job's heart was genuinely honest towards God, and Job's friends were cynical, and they were against God, and they were accusing him. They weren't coming from this honest place that Job was. Because God welcomes our honesty. He welcomes our wrestling with Him. 
He wants us to be honest and ask questions. And like our verses this time says, the Lord answered Job from the storm. He answers Job. He answers him when he asks his deep questions. He didn't answer Job when Job became perfect. He didn't wait until the storm was past. He didn't wait until Job finally had the nugget that he was looking for and all this suffering that made sense of it all. He answered a broken, needy person who's suicidal at times, who's at his wit's end. He answered Job from his storm. He answered Job in his storm with his truth, with his true voice. And he'll answer you. But sometimes we don't realize that there's competition for our ears. The Lord will answer us from the storm, but also there will be other voices in the storm that would like to take our attention. There's a lot of voices in your own heart, and there's a lot of voices in the world that are trying to sing you and swoon you into destruction. Negative voices that want to tear you down. In the book of Joel, I found a few different voices that might help us comprehend the whole story. At the very beginning of the book of Joel, there's a voice coming from a, a person with the Hebrew word spelled Shin Ted Nun. In English, we transliterate that word, Satan. All throughout the Old Testament, there is this word, Satan, that shows up, and it's translated as the adversary, or an adversary. An adversary came against David, or an adversary came against this person. Sometimes, you get the definite article attached to the adversary. So it sounds like the adversary. It's a, it's a capital letter word. It's the adversary. The Satan. Like in everyone's favorite chapter of Zechariah, when Joshua the high priest is standing in filthy clothes before the Lord, who's standing next to him? The adversary. Or in 2 Chronicles 20, uh, 1 Chronicles 20, when David goes to take the census, um, that was a sin of distrust against the Lord. The first verse of that chapter says, The adversary enticed David to take a census. There's a person called the adversary, the Satan. And he shows up three times in the biblical narrative, and he does the same thing every time. The first time he shows up in the biblical narrative is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Eve was hanging out by this tree that Adam was specifically told not to eat from. And the adversary comes up, the Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes up to Eve and says, Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat that tree? Did God really say that? He didn't really mean that. Of course, if you eat of that fruit, you're not going to die. You're going to become smarter. He comes in and says the opposite of what God just told him to do. The third time he shows up in the biblical narrative is in Matthew chapter 3. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 3, at the very end, Jesus gets baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. And as soon as Jesus comes up from the water, God can't contain himself, bursts through the heavens with a voice that says, That's my son, 
So proud of him. So pleased with him. That's my son. And then three verses later, Jesus is out in the wilderness, and the adversary comes up against him and says, if you really were the son of God, why don't you do the stones thing? Stones in the bread. Why don't you do the angels thing? That they're going to catch you from, from this high place. Why are you so insecure about yourself? If you really were the son of God, you could just do this stuff. I mean, why don't you just bow down to me and prove that you're bigger than me, that you're, that you're greater than me, just bow down to me. He questions the voice of God three verses after God just said, that is my son. He does the same thing in Joel chapter 1, the voice of the adversary. The adversary comes into the courts of God in this weird story where all these angels are presenting themselves before the Lord, and the Lord asks him, what are you doing? Where have you been? And he says, I do what I do. I've been roaming from here. I've been roaming from there. What's it to you? And in God, in the essence of what he says is, you're not that obvious, free as you think you are. Have you considered my servant Job? Even if you were to tempt him and test him, he wouldn't turn away from you. And he says, really? And I used to think that the heavens would have just erupted, that somebody would question the Lord from being honest or not. Question the Lord's honesty. But now I realize, as I see the movement of the adversary in the story of the Bible, that they probably weren't all that surprised. So Jesus calls him the father of lies. He can only go against what truth is. He'll tell you the opposite of what's true, or he'll at least take what's true and twist it just a little bit, or he'll make you prove what's true and what isn't true, what has been told to you isn't true, he'll say. The only weapon that we're given against the adversary is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians says. It's the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And the tragedy is, we won't use it. We won't memorize it. We won't believe it. We won't trust it. God's Word speaks to us through the Bible, and and the adversary comes against us and says, that's not true, and we believe him. Sometimes this happens in Psalm 23 environments. Sometimes this happens in Psalm 22 environments. Sometimes it is green pastures and still waters. But sometimes it is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you right now? I need to hear you. Speak to me. What will you do when your family is in a Psalm 22 environment? What word will you have to be able to to go against the voice of the adversary when he says to your children and to your family, God never say that. Did he really mean don't eat of the fruit? I mean, he didn't have your best interests in play when he said that. God didn't really say don't commit adultery. That's, that's just an old way of saying things. This is just some antiquated religious propaganda that some guys wrote down a long time ago. That's not really what God wants you to do. There's a better way for life. What will you say when the voice of the adversary is speaking to you 
a moment like when you're in, in, in a moment like Job, when you've lost everything, you've lost your name, you've lost your money, you've lost your reputation, you've lost family, whose voice will you be listening to? The antidote, the antidote against the adversary is the word of God. You've got to listen to the voice of God when the adversary comes against you in the storms of life. He will answer you from the storm. Let him have the final word. Another voice that I see in the story of Job is his friends. A lot of people skip the friends section because it seems to get a little confusing and, and tangled up and complicated, but this is a poetic wisdom book in the Bible. It's, it's very intentional, very ordered, and once you know the sequence of how things are going on, it's not that confusing anymore. So the sequence, the formula of what's going on with Job's friends through the entire middle section of the book of Job, goes like this. Job's got these three friends that speak. One of them doesn't speak until like chapter 32. The three friends' names is Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I call them Ellie, Billy, and Zoe. <laughs> Eliphaz speaks his opinion of why Job is going through this suffering. And then Job responds with a counter-argument. Bildad speaks of why he thinks Job is suffering. And then Job responds with his answer to that argument. Zophar speaks as to why he thinks Job is suffering. And then Job responds. And that's the cycle. It happens three times in, in that order. And every time Job's friends speak, they get meaner and their arguments get shorter. Until the point where in the third cycle, Zophar doesn't even speak. Meanwhile, Job gets more resolved and he gets stronger and stronger, but it still wears against his opinion and it still wears against him believing that God has integrity in the situation. So I wrote down some of the verses in circle one just to illustrate. Eliphaz says, in the essence of his first argument in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Who was it that was innocent, that ever perished? Job, it's obviously your fault. Nobody who's innocent has ever perished. Job responds in chapter 6, verse 10, Then I will still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain. I've never denied the words of the Holy One. Six twenty. Teach me and I'll be silent. Make me understand where I have gone astray. It's not my fault. This is happening for another reason. Build that argument is essentially eight chapter eight, verse three and four. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. It's your kids' fault, Job. They did something wrong. They got what they deserved. That's a dig. That's sharp. Job responds in chapter 9, verse 22. Then God must just destroy the good and the bad, because I don't have an answer for this. Zophar's argument, you can see in chapter 11, verse 14. 
If you put away the sin that's in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault will you lift up your face and you will stand firm without fear. You've got a secret sin in your tent, Joel. There's something that you're not telling us that only you know about. It's your fault. In Job 13, he ends that cycle with, you guys are worthless physicians. What you know, I know. I am not inferior to you. Your wisdom would be to just shut up. And then the cycles continue, and they get, they get worse and worse and more condemning as it goes on. What's the antidote to these voices? These voices. What's the antidote to a voice in your heart that starts to say, everything around you is one, is one plus one equals two. Everything around you is cause and effect. Everything that you've done will be done to you. There's no mercy. There's no grace. The antidote is found in Job's fourth, his fourth, his fourth friend's argument. In chapter 32, where he basically says, when did you guys get so arrogant, so cocky to think that you know everything that's going on? The essence of what he says is this. You need to learn how to just say, I don't know why this has happened. And that's just reality. We need to learn how to say there's, there's a lot more going on than I know. And if you right now are disagreeing with that, the danger that you're putting yourself into is that you're putting so much more pressure on yourself than what you are, than what you are made to carry. Start to become so compulsive with all of your decisions and everything has to be perfect and everything has to be right or else your life is going to fall apart. You become the center of the universe. You're the sun, and if you're not shining, everything's going to fall apart. All, the whole galaxy's going to go in every direction. And think back on that, and backtrack in your mind all the major decisions of your life and all the important calls that you've had to make. Were they self-preserving? Were they self-oriented, self-centered? You're putting way too much pressure on yourself. And sometimes that will lead to us becoming more spiritual than God. When I was a kid, I heard this kind of formula, this formulated way of thinking about God that bothered me. I remember 13 years old, sitting in church, and somebody come up in front of church and say, Well, you know, a year ago I gave my life to the Lord, and I said that day, Lord, I'll do anything for you, but I will not go to Mexico. And wouldn't you know, the next day, I was on a plane to Monterey. Isn't that how the Lord works? And I'm thinking, no. That can't be, it can't be that easy to manipulate God. Then I just started praying things like, God, I'll do anything but move to Hawaii. I'll do anything but become the most famous musician the world has ever known. Please, don't burden me with that. Maybe harmless to just pray kind of things like that. It may be sort of comical to God. But where does that eventually leave us? A friend of mine last year told me, I love God. I, think, I know that he's good. But I will not trust him with my children. 
Because I know once I do, he will take them from me. He will test it. Is that who God is? Is he that petty and that predictable? What about flip that formula around? What about when you do something really difficult and expect God to reward you for it? God, I raised my children. I taught them all the right Bible verses so they have to return. You promised me, didn't you? God, I laid my relationship down. And isn't there something somewhere about letting love go and if it returns to me, it's meant to be? Isn't that you? Getting God to give you what you want. Putting Him inside of a formula will cause you to become frustrated with Him and accusing Him of doing you wrong. This is what happens to Job. In chapter 9, you can see this, verse 17. The Lord crushes me with this storm and multiplies my wounds without cause. Chapter 9, verse 22-24. The Lord destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. The whole earth is given into the hand of the wicked, and he covers the faces of judges. If not he, then who? Chapter 10, verse 3. Does it please you to oppress me? To spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Chapter 10, verse 8. Your hands fashioned me. And made me, and now you turn and completely destroy me. In 10 verse 16, you hunt me like a fierce lion. You display your power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger against me. Verse 20, leave me alone that I may find just a little comfort. 16 verse 9, your anger has torn me and persecuted me. You gnash your teeth at me. My adversary locks his eyes upon me. See, at first it was, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But as the story goes on, the more that that voice gets hold of Job's heart, it just becomes the Lord takes and the Lord takes. I get a lot of encouragement by the story that James and Dara sent me of a guy named Cliff Young in Australia. See, there's an ultra marathon in Australia that's the longest and hardest in the entire world. It's 544 miles long. And one day, a guy named Cliff Young shows up to the starting line, hasn't registered for the race, has never run a race before. He's 61 years old. And he decides one morning, I think I want to run this race. So he goes out there and shows up in rubber rain boots and jean overalls. And he gets to the starting line, and, a, and a, a news reporter asks him what it's going to feel like when a, a hundred kilometers down the road, he drops dead of a massive heart attack. All he does is he takes out his dentures and says, I don't like the way these feel when I jog. See, Cliff was a shepherd. He had over 2,000 sheep and no sheepdogs. And so he would just run around all the time trying to gather up these sheep, and sometimes it would take multiple days to do this. Cliff had never ran a marathon before. He just thought it would just be simple enough to just run. See, the other marathon runners had a system. They'd run 17 hours, they'd sleep for seven, rinse, and repeat. Eat while they run. 17 hours, rinse, sleep, rinse, and repeat. 
Cliff just kept running. Cliff kept running five days, 14 hours, and four minutes straight and set the world record for this ultra marathon and beat the world record by two days. The person who would have won the world record came in nine hours after him. And in the meanwhile, he didn't even know there was a $10,000 grand prize uh, for the winner. And so he cashed it and made even portions of all the cash for everyone who would actually cross the finish line. And he personally handed them the money himself. His reflections on this race are simple. He says, I've never been here before. I don't know how to do this. I just kept going. When it became really dark, I just kept going. It was really difficult. Like at home, when my sheep are scattered all over the place, I just kept going. We need to learn how to say it sometimes in life. you got to just say, I've never been here before. I don't know how to do this, but I'm just going to keep going. And I'm going to trust God that he's got a plan and that there's something that he can do from all this. We need to learn how to say, I don't have everything figured out. Not everything is completely on my shoulders and my fault. I'm just going to trust God in the midst of this storm. But what Job says in chapter 19, verse 7, Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. Chapter 30, verse 20, I cry out to you, O God, but you will not answer me. But God does answer Job from the storm. In chapter 38, verse 1, we have the same verses we read in chapter 40, verse 6. The Lord answered Job from the storm. God answers Job with like 70 questions. They sound like this. Can you, have you, do you know? Let me read a few. Chapter 38. The Lord speaks to Job out of the storm and said, Who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I'll question you, you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out its measuring line across them? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When, it, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed its limits and set its doors and bars in place, when I said to the sea, this fire shall come and no further, here's where your proud waves may halt. Have you ever given the morning its orders or shown the dawn its place, that it might take earth by the edge and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and the upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Stop me when, when I go too far. 
Can you take them to their place? Do you know the dwelling path, their dwelling paths? Surely you know, for you were born already. You have lived so many years. Have you went to the storehouses of the snow, or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed? Or a place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of the rain, or a path for thunderstorms? To water the land where no one lives, in an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain of a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? Look at verse uh, 1, chapter 39. Do you know where the mountain goat gives birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months until they bear? Do you know the time when they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young with their late, and when their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and they grow strong in the wild. They leave and they don't return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its robes? I gave it to the wasteland. I gave the wasteland its home and the salt flats its inhabitants. Its habitation. It laughs at the commotion in town. It doesn't hear the driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. This is God's answer to Job. And I can categorize these two these these answers of Job into two different categories. Number one, God's answer to Job is. Job, I am really, really big. Don't let your God become really small. Don't let your God become smaller than your problems. God will say to you, can you number the clouds? Can you establish the laws of the universe? You might be able to think of a word and call it gravity, but can you make it? I think God really is trying to elicit a word from Job. When's the last time you just said, Wow! God loves to hear us say the word, Wow! I can't think of another reason why God would make something called a Grand Canyon than to just watch us walk up to the, to the rim and say, Wow! For mighty rivers to just flow through the land. All of a we just come up to it and say, wow. Look at the ocean and say, wow. Alaska. That's all I have to say about that. This book is talking about an infinite God. And what I love about God's response to this is that, that he doesn't just use theological terms to answer Job. He doesn't just say, Job, don't you know I'm omniscient? I'm omnipresent. all the omnis. Don't you know those words? Don't those comfort you? No, he says, Job, look around. All those words are found in, in my creation. Romans chapter 1 says the invisible qualities of God are, are made known through nature. You're able to see that if you just open your eyes and 
really see? What's your problem? What are you worried about? Money? Anxious about the future? God says, has the, has the rain a father? In verse 28, I told the oceans its boundaries. I said, you're only allowed to go this far. We can't move the ocean anywhere. Wow. Then he goes to the stars in verse 31 and says, can you do the stars thing? God does this all throughout Scripture. One of my favorite stories in Genesis is when Abraham is so crippled by the fact that he doesn't have a son yet. He says, God, you promised me this. But I don't see how it's going to happen. It's impossible. I'm too old. And God takes him out of his tent. Maybe even puts his arm over his shoulder and says, look up. Count the stars if you're able to count them. Count the stars, but I bet you can't. If you're able to, count them. The reason why I made so many of them is just so that you would say, wow. Could this be God's answer to those of us who let our problems become so big that the God of the Bible has become so small and insignificant and isn't able to help us? Could he be saying to you, I'm bigger than your logic. I'm bigger than your system. I'm bigger than your pride. I'm bigger than your enemy, than your addiction. I'm bigger than that thing that's causing your family to become, to be in turmoil. Just a little faith in me, the size of a mustard seed, and you can say to the mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will be. I'm big enough for you to cast all your cares upon me. I have a big enough shoulder. It's the first thing that God says with these questions. I'm really, really big. Can you trust me? The second thing that God says with these questions are, is... I'm really, really small. I'm so small. Just in case you were just starting to think that you're so insignificant that God would, would see that your prayers were important. Just if you were starting to think that your prayer was so insignificant for traveling mercies that God would wouldn't see that through. He says, no, if I'm infinitely big, I'm also infinitely small. There's nothing too small for me. Do you know where the mountain goat goes to give birth? I do. Do you know where the wild donkey lives and where it rains in places that you've never gone and never even heard of? I know. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing about it. Are you not much more valuable than a sparrow? There's nothing too small for him. Not even you. Not even your family. On this tiny planet, in this giant universe, your little family, he says, I see you. I'll fight for you. Your small heart, your little heart inside of your chest, as one person of millions of people on this planet, he says, I want your heart to be healthy. I will shepherd your heart. It's not too small a thing for me to take care of. I will meet you in the storm and I'll answer you and speak to you. God answers Job from the storm with his greatness and with his intimacy. And he'll answer you from the storm if you'll seek him. 
And at the end of this, Job is left with his hand covering his mouth. He says, I spoke too soon. I spoke of things that were too wonderful for me. He's humbled, he's ashamed, he sits down in the dust. He has no answer. Job has no answer to God when he says, Would you, Job, accuse me of doing wrong and justify yourself? Would you condemn me to save yourself? He's left with no answer, and he's left only to God's mercy. Where are you with this God? You feel like he's really far away. Has the adversary tricked you into thinking that God has nothing to do with your life and that he's too far and he won't speak into your life and he won't, he can't help you? That he's tricked you into thinking that life is just about morals and life as a Christian is just about following these rules. If that's you, the Bible has been shut for a really long time. You're not allowing God to speak to you. Or are you right now thinking that you've got God figured out have you put him into a box and your system has to make him fit into this perfect formula? If that's you, you've been becoming really frustrated with God. I mean, Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred weakens the heart. Longings fulfilled is like the tree of life. You probably hoped in things that God never really promised you because you thought that you had him figured out. And now he's become wrong. He's wronged you. You put God on trial and accused him of doing something wrong to you like Job did. But God isn't predictable. He's consistent about one thing, and he's unpredictable. <laughs> you probably started saying things to God like, or to people, I don't believe in a God who would. I don't believe in a God who would allow this or allow that. You don't believe in a God who would what? Have a way that's higher than you? Have a system of thinking that's higher than your system? Know something that you don't know? If this is you, then you are going to eventually just be left right where Job is, standing there before some mighty force and saying, I just don't have an answer. Standing before some tragic moment in life and just saying, I don't have an answer for this. I don't have a category. I've spoken too soon. And at the end of the day, on our own strength, we will all just be end, end up just putting our hands over our mouth saying, I don't have an answer. One thing I love about God is that he loves questions. One, the first question that God ever asked in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. Where are you, he says to Adam? And I notice that the first question asked in the New Testament in Matthew is different. The first question in the New Testament is where is he? Where is he? The Magi asked, 
was going to come and make sense of all of this. Essentially saying, where's the answer? Because we're all like Joel standing before God without an answer. Where is the answer? He's supposed to come and make sense of this and answer all of our questions about suffering and loss and pain. Where is he? Jesus came to this world and he, he actually embodied that last that question, Job chapter 40, verse 8, where God asked Job, Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Jesus came in the world and said, would, would you just condemn me to justify yourself? I'll come and be the answer to the biggest questions and the biggest problems that you could ever face to sin and to death. And I'll say, condemn me so that you will be justified. In bringing many sons to glory, the author and the perfecter of our faith, provided salvation through suffering. He didn't skip the storm so that you could never say to him, you don't know what this feels like. He entered into the storm for the joy set before him. He endured the sufferings of the cross because he wanted to give us hope that there's something, that there's another, and that there's something on the other end of this. Because he loves us all so much. So what's the wisdom that we can get from the story of Job? He asked that in chapter 28, verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? The wisdom of the book of Job can be summed up in two things. That there are things going on that we just don't know about. See, Job's friends and him didn't read chapter 1. They don't know about the conversation that's going on between the adversary and God. We need to become humble and admit that there are things going on that we just don't know why they're going on and trust God before we accuse Him of doing wrong. And number two, let God have the final word about it. Let God have the final word in your life and in your pain and in your grief. God says, I will come and I will wipe away all tears. You just got to trust me. You may not know the answer now, but one day you will be 100% satisfied with what the answer is. If you let him, God will come and God will answer you with his greatness and his intimacy. So Father, I pray that you would come Teach people about how great you are. And how intimate you want to be with all of us. How you weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Teach us how to say wow again. Teach us how to say Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look outside and see the stars, I wonder, what am I doing here? What is a man that you should be mindful of him? Teach us how to be humble and say wow again. For those of us who have lost all sense of wonder in this life. Open our eyes that we may see how great you are. And open our hearts to know how small that you are and how intimate you will be with us. 
Jesus, thank you for being the answer. Else we're just standing before God with no answer, covering our mouths with ash on our heads, awaiting for some sort of wrath. But you loved us and came into the storm to be the answer. Thank you.